0: I am Ben Britton, and uh, you're listening to BRFC's supporters podcast. Let's
1: go, brothers! <speaking in Spanish>
2: a BRFCS podcast sponsored by the lovely people at the Terrace Store follow them on Twitter at the Terrace Life and check out their website at theterracestore.com
3: We're looking for a new type of entertainment any old Joe talking. Okay. Uh, what's that sir? People talking about stuff. Oh, uh, that doesn't really sound entertainment. It's audio only. Oh, okay uh, Like radio Sh-ty radio. Yeah, sorry. You heard me Jason. Okay. So like a mini radio show. No music What no music? Yeah, no music. You gotta have music sir. Fine crappy royalty-free internet music but you said it was going to be entertaining, funny. Yes, Jason, it could be funny. Oh, great! But it won't be. What? I don't understand. Jason, Jason, Jason. The barrier to entry is basically nothing. So every man, woman, and dog can make a podcast. Podcast? Oh, is that what it's called? That doesn't sound like a bad thing, though. It'll be a bad thing. So we're creating it now. We can we can change whatever we want. Pfft. We? Sorry, sir, you. Jason, Jason, Jason. Okay, so how many podcasts will there be? Two. Two million. <laughs> Two million? You heard me, Jason. <sighs> sir, I think that's too many. What up, Jason? The overwhelming majority of podcasts will only have one episode, Jason which is all you need to lose motivation to talk to your buddy about skiffleboarding or to interview that one famous lady that went to your school. Right, well maybe they just need to be available in more places, sir. Make them free and available just about anywhere. Right, everywhere. And give each one a boring introduction. What? And ads. Ads? What ads? Every single one is sponsored by a company encouraging you to set up a website. <laughs> Well, it just seems a little slow, yeah. Can't we add another feature, sir? Absolutely, Jason. Okay, well, what about popular music? Can we just add the music back in? Nope. Maybe not everyone can start one. Nope. Well, let's at least make them really, really exciting so people just want to re-listen to them. Ah, I've got it, Jason. Here we go. Skip 30 seconds. What? That's a feature? Yep and listen faster wait what you heard me jason what about the ads skip them the royalty-free music skip them the intros that people have spent hours and hours on making skip what skip it all (laughs) so what would people listen to shut up jason make it happen i'm going to the pub goodbye (laughs) bye great create a platform where the number one feature is to get through it quicker awesome sounds good to me
4: jason
0: the man who decides podcasts that's from jimmy reese the australian comedian you'll find him on youtube he has a channel called jimmy reese and he's also on twitter at jimmy reese well worth checking out his other stuff
1: hello there you're listening to the brfcs podcast And this bit is simply a
0: mechanism to assist the editing together of two different parts. Sorry to let daylight in upon magic, but there it is. Now here's Bill Arthur, reading from Daniel Gray's excellent book, Extra Time, 50 Further Delights of Modern Football, an excellent Christmas stocking filler, if I may say so. This is spotting a first-match fan.
4: Their parents or grandparents give them away. There, in a main-stand car park, those elders stand pointing at parts of the ground, personal tour guides showing off this home shared with thousands of others. A first-match fan's eyes, suddenly broad as pebbles, try to follow the commentary, but there is too much else to be transfixed by, too much hullabaloo and chaotic theatre to ignore. The child turns to see all the smiling, singing and hopeless faces striding towards the stadium. Never has he or she seen so many people, all heading the same way. Never has he or she felt a part of something so vast. The boy or the girl looks upwards. Everything here is big and busy. Bigger than all items and fittings in their worlds. Bigger than home. Bigger than school. Busier even than Saturday supermarkets. Until now, he or she barely knew there was this many people in the world. That feeling of being part of something bigger impossible to define when your world is your scooter or your bookcase, will sprung first in the walk towards the match. Parent or grandparent will likely be initiating their debutant in every article of ritual pre-match pub, route to the ground, program from the usual cellar. They will be pointing out landmarks those stadium features, statues of ex-players, remnants from the old days, and human furniture – fat lotto vendors, food poisoning burger mongers, club eccentrics. Each observation may seem inconsequential, not least to the child, but each is a brick of identity and belonging to a football club. When you detect one such observation ringing true or conjuring a grin, as if you were watching an entire life being decided as a young heart falls for football. Back now by the ground, a young hand is pulled to the club shop. Needless gifts in the right colours are bought, a scarf, a shirt, threads that bind. To play this role you must look the part. Then to the turnstiles, whether heaved and shoved, or gently pried, the moving of the turnstile is another nodal point in the first time as day. It is too another act in which he or she can be fondly spotted by the rest of us, nervously moving forward like a kitten in a new house. Time and the type of ground the child is entering govern what happens next, though all paths and clocks are leading to the same wondrous thing. A small and older place may mean only a few steps until it happens. While a modern stadium or stand will involve the dingy purgatory of a concourse. But happen it does, either way. That first sight of the pitch, looking like God's front garden. The child's eyes cannot leave it alone, and he or she is siphoned and sidled to their seat. Noise builds in the minutes to kick off and crescendos with the referee's whistle. The only similar thing our child may have experienced is an aeroplane taking off. The first time, it tries hard to focus on the play, a chaotic kind of circus, but match day inside the ground offers so much more to look at. Those near you, those in the other stand, the away end, the men and women in fluorescent jackets, the benches, then a goal, what noise all focuses on the pitch and trying to fathom events and celebrations, lifted as you are by that person that loves you that person who loves the fact that football is drifting into you. A game ends, just as the first match fan begins to understand what is happening on the pitch. If things have gone well, then while others discuss abject refereeing and which pub to head for, he or she is staring still at the field of luminous green, wondering if they can come again tomorrow.
5: Hi, I'm Tez Ilias of Blackburn, and you are listening to the BRFCS podcast. So the season's
0: unfolding. There's no doubt that um, we've had some highs and we've had some lows already. I'd, li- I'd like to explore a little bit more, though, about what are the most heartwarming moments of the season?
6: Does it have to be Rovers-related, I'm, um, I'm, gu- I'm guessing
0: it doesn't have to be, because I think you might have something in mind.
6: Yeah, so um, I was at Hampden for Scotland, Denmark, So, that is my favourite moment of the season so far. Um, A very good night. I enjoyed myself possibly a little bit too much. Um, And yeah, wonderful to see them six in a row. Um, The Danes were fantastic. So, I had a lot, I was sat right next to them. So, I had a lot of fun with them as well. Um, So, yeah, that's my favourite moment of the season. It's probably not particularly heartwarming for 99% of the English people listening. I was there about an hour before just because the Scottish are very COVID aware. So there's quite a few checks to go through, um, including a vaccine passport that obviously we don't have here. Um, so I was there a little bit early just to make sure everything was all right, which it was. And um, So I got to see them sort of come out, which I never get to see at Rovers because I'm always in the pub. Um, so that was quite nice. Who knew people warmed up before a game? I've learned <laughs> something there. Um, That's what and anthem then, yeah, they... jackets are for. Yeah. And then, yeah, the game was was fantastic. And then I was still in the ground probably half an hour after it finished, just singing and dancing and yeah having having a good time but if I can have a favorite Rovers um heartwarming moment um I'd like to pick the two little boys who sat in front of me on the first game of the season with their homemade um chili flags and they'd begged their mum and dad they lived in South Wales and they'd begged their mum and dad to bring them to the game um so they could see uh, the man himself not Rovers fans Never been to Ewood before, um, but I just heard the story and, and loved him and made these little flags and waved them all It's game. quite the phenomenon, so, isn't it? It really is something. He is. So that's, that's definitely my favourite. And they just waved the little flags, had the time of their life, and that's what we want. We want people to be coming because they're being inspired by him and you know, Dolan and all the other kind of lovely people that we've got around at the moment. We have got a likeable
0: team, haven't we? It seems to be one of those squads that's...
6: Yeah, I think so. Um, And that's where sometimes they're so confusing, because I think historically you can put down some of the bad performances or questionable decisions to the fact that we know there's been some bad apples, but... They seem okay, and that's why when when things go a little bit awry, you can't quite make sense of it. It's a lot easier to um dislike people when they're not particularly nice people, but they all seem quite nice um yeah so so definitely the two little boys with the chili flags are my favorite heartwarming rovers moment excellent Ryan, what about you
7: i, I Tyree stolen definitely deserves a mention I've really enjoyed just seeing him become a really important member of our squad and the connection he's got with the fans in particular I think he's got quite a unique one I know we've had the Diaz thing this season but Dolan does seem to have a, a real special place in the heart of the fans and obviously I'm not from Lancashire but for those people that are you know that little Preston element just makes it a little bit sweeter doesn't it that we nabbed him off Preston that's been heartwarming for me just seeing a young man Emerge into not just on the pitch, off the pitch as well. Just an absolute role model, and to lose your best friend in the way that he did, and to respond so positively and, and turn that into something that he can stand for and campaign for. You know, I'm 15 years older than him. He's he's an inspiration for someone like me as well. So, you know, just that's that's my heartwarming moment. I think
0: can't argue with that one. I have
1: to say, Michael,
0: anything that's particularly caught your eye in the football season thus far?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'd just like to build up on that point that Ryan made about Tyree Stoll, and I can't add to anything to what he said, except for you asked for a specific moment. So There was a moment when he got subbed off against Cardiff, and obviously we were, we were home and dry by that point. And he didn't just kind of run down the tunnel and do the quick clap over his head. He actually ran towards where we are on the Riverside halfway line. And then he just took the applause from the whole of the riverside and then the whole of the Blackman end and then the whole of the Jack Walker. And then when you see that it was actually at the, at the anniversary of, of, Je- of Jeremy's death, and he pointed to the sky, you just thought he's gonna absolutely enjoy every moment of it. And you know, like Ryan, he's he's such an inspiration to everybody. And you wouldn't begrudge him a moment of that. You know, two guy did that at the end of his career at Rovers. That, that was fantastic. I've been doing something unusual this season. I've been trying to do a bit more ground hopping and seeing other grounds because there's only one ground in our division which I'm which I've not been to, and that's Kenilworth Road, home of Luton, possibly my least favourite team in in our division. But like Linz, I've also been to Hampden Park, but unlike Linz, I went when it was an atmosphereless cavern because I went to the round of 16 game in the Euros, which isn't technically this season, but it was to see um, Andrei Shevchenko's Ukraine narrowly beat sweden in the uh, in the euros and then deservedly earn a proper drubbing at the hands of england in the next
0: game which i'm sure will go down in Lindsay's top five of hot uh, warming moments for the international season
1: well you know i i, I i've been to hampden park but never never in the circumstances that, uh, that Linz has with a proper atmosphere um but uh, speaking of scotland it's good to see that uh, the season of goodwill is amongst uh, upon us anything in particular that-
0: you're referring to
1: yeah, no matter how bad you are at your job, and I've been bad at some of my jobs I've done in the past, but it gives me great hope to think that in the future someone somewhere will give me a highly paid job because if that can happen to Steve Keen, the new academy director at Hibernian, then there's hope who knows. for us all. There's hope for us
0: all. Yeah. Now, you, you've been exploring. Well, you you have adopted Hibs, I think, as your Scottish side, shall I say? Um, yeah. What, uh, one of the things that they have in common with us is they were formed in 1875. Yeah, and now they've got something else in common with us, so that's just that just strengthens those, those bonds ever further. I suggest.
1: Yeah, managed by Tony Mowbray, had uh, our pitch graced by such legends of the game as Anthony Stokes, and of course now, the thing is, in two years' time, we'll have a real, real solid bond with Hibs fans because you know, <laughs> we'll be able to we'll be able to sell them their keen, keen out banners and everything.
8: I think it's actually the minute silence for Remembrance Day before the Sheffield United game. I think we're kind of used to applauses after a player passes away. So that old thing where the ground just goes silent for one minute. And it was a packed stadium. And it still had that powerful feeling, which it should do every year. Um, And obviously that match came after... That horrible seven-nil against Fulham, and I think it was just altogether a great day, with with the three-one win as well. So that th- that was one of my favourite matches, uh, probably in the last few years. I think it was it's a really good day.
0: As you say, it's so unusual that you do get a minute's silence, I and mean, it was you could almost hear the pin the proverbial pin drop. I know there were some Sheffield United fans outside the ground coming in, and as they were coming in, um, they were being shushed. By their by their own supporters, they were walking in because obviously they, they didn't realise what was going on. So I think, uh, th- yeah, that was truly powerful. Matt, w- uh, you, you're here to provide the young person's perspective, you see. So you're supposed to uh, come up with sort of lots of different and creative ideas. So no pressure. But what's the most heartwarming moment of the season so far for you?
5: I think I don't know. I think it's you know you might see it as a bit of a, a naff answer, but for me it's. When, wait, it's Ian Pervader celebrating his goal, weirdly. I don't know, I don't really know why, but it was just the way that he celebrated it, you know, the way that, the way that he scored it as well. You know, it was a nice, a nice composed finish. After, you know, all the, the slating he's been getting from our fans, it was just really heartwarming and nice to see him, you know, our fans actually celebrating something he'd done as opposed to hurling abuse at him instead. Do you know what? The, the bit that I
0: liked was when he kept going round to the crowd and this works really well on an audio medium but sort of like waving his hands and sort of saying to the crowd come on, make some noise, get behind us and it, re- it clearly really meant something to him. We, we've spoken about him previously I know and you saw him at Barnsley. What was what was so different then about the Sheffield United pervader compared to the Barnsley pervader?
5: I think well I think it's be- always better for a player when they start a game That I think that really helps I think but yeah I think especially compared to the Barnsley game he was just a lot more confident whether it was because we were at home or because the rest of the team was playing really well or whatever but yeah the Barnsley game I wasn't I wasn't his biggest fan after that but the Sheffield United <laughs> one that yeah he's definitely gone up that's for sure
0: yeah I think he's raised the benchmark now I did talk to a colleague at work who's a Leeds United fan and said that he says that Bielsa really really rates him um and I looked him up on Wikipedia and of course he's been at some clubs already it's, it's absolutely extraordinary, sort of City, Chelsea, Barcelona, Leeds. I mean, yeah, the, the kid's only, what, 21 or something. It's, uh, he's got quite uh, quite an extensive CV already, so adding Rovers to that is really quite something.
2: You're looking for the perfect gift for a football fan, aren't you? In that case, you need to go to theterrissstore.com and search through the marvellous range of Rovers products. You'll see mugs, prints, bags and much, much more all in the colours of your favourite team, Blackburn Rovers. And as you are a loyal listener to the BRFCS podcast enter BRFCS at the checkout to secure a 10% discount. The Terrace Store, not just for Christmas.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Janssen, and you're
4: listening to the
0: BRFCS Podcast. So it's a welcome back to the BRFCS Podcast to Rob Sawyer. Um, Rob has been on the podcast before, talking about a book that he'd written about Rovers and Everton player Roy Vernon. And he's come back because he's got another book about another former Rovers and former Everton player. There's a, there's a rich seam, I think, in history of, the, of transfers <laughs> between the two clubs. But you are an Everton fan, Rob, but you do have some Blackburn connections. So welcome back. But for the listener that isn't familiar with you or your works, uh, what are your Blackburn connections?
9: Yeah. Uh, hi there, Ian. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, my Blackburn connection is through my mother uh, mother's side of the family from Blackburn, uh, Little Harwood. So my granddad was a regular at Ewood Park, um, and I think he was probably quite distraught when when uh, his daughter married a, an Evertonian, <laughs> uh, and over the years my mum's been gradually converted so that she now worries about two different clubs, both of whom often let her down. So yeah, um, I'm an Everton fan, but I always have a soft spot for Rovers, keeping on the results, and uh, it's always always a pleasure to go back up and visit uh, visit the town.
0: That's good to hear, it's good to hear. At least they both play in the same colours, so you could wear a blue and white scarf and cover all the bases, I guess
9: absolutely
0: fantastic so uh, as we said we, we've had you on before and we've talked about your book um about Roy Vernon how did that go by the way how was that received
9: yeah uh, it went well I mean it's always lovely to get you know feedback from people who read it and um say that it brought out the Roy that they knew whether that's on the pitch or if, if they'd ever come across him off the pitch I mean Roy was one of life's characters you know as well as being a brilliant player uh it was, it was great to great to write it and uh you know it's always great to hear people have enjoyed it and uh, as you say it's a rich theme of uh, everton and rovers connections and uh, i just seem to be working my way through them bit by bit
0: well I, personally i look forward to the howard kendall the jim arnold and the glenn keely on loan books i think they're they're, they're probably uh, probably the, worth the it. key
9: the keely book might be a pamphlet so certainly <laughs> for everything career
0: a two-paragraph pdf available to download yeah <laughs> For, for younger listeners who aren't familiar with that, it's definitely worth Googling. I think there is YouTube footage of Glenn Keeley's uh, match for Everton against Liverpool. Let's just say he didn't cover himself in glory. We'll, uh, we'll touch on that some other time. So you, um, you have written a book about Keith Newton, the Keith Newton story. What was it about Keith then that made you feel he was a suitable uh, subject for a book?
9: Maybe the same with you. As, as a youngster, I always used to flick through these sort of uh, history football history books. And I had one about Everton called Everton, player by player. And every player would have a a profile and a photo. And I'd sort of read them religiously and almost memorise them. Uh, And Keith was one of of the people featured. And it always struck me how, just from that short pen pick, you know, he was this England international, had been a great success at Rovers, in England caps, and came to Everton and it kind of, it just didn't pan out. So it always sort of curious as to how that had happened. Such a great player. Ended up a a get a great team at yeah. the time with Everton, and, and it just somehow didn't work out to everybody's benefit. So it always been that curiosity as to what what were the reasons for that, and and from then it was just um, I, I, I do you know joking aside about Blackburn and Everton. I always do like to look for connections between the two the two clubs, Roy Vernon being a c- case in point. And a couple of years ago, I finally made contact with um, Keith's wife, uh, Barbara. Uh, went to Meta and had looked at all these lovely cuttings and photos uh, with the intention of doing an article at some point. And, and it just grew from there that I thought, well, you know, there's too much to do. You can't do Keith Justice with an article. So it, it sort of turned into this project where um, it became a sort of a small book that and I could hopefully raise a few a few pounds for charity as well. Um, and it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to research research and write, to be honest with you.
0: And besides Barbara, who else did you manage to speak to about
9: Keith? Um, obviously, I spoke to uh, Keith's son, Craig, who were, you know, was just a young kid when Keith was at his peak of his powers. Uh, but also most of his teammates, um, even some who are no longer with us, like uh, I chatted to Fred Prickling a few years ago and talked about Keith. Uh, people like Brian Douglas, uh, so teammates that are still with us from Rovers, but also teammates at Burnley. Am I allowed to mention them? I think and so. I, th- I think we
0: have to in the context <laughs> of what we're talking about. We'll come on to that later on as well, but uh, we I guess we do.
9: Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, so I've just tried to speak to uh, teammates from, from all his clubs and also international level, people like Mike Somerby, Uh but also supporters. And uh, I mean, you're very lucky, I think, at Rovers. You know Fred Kumpste, for example. There's some brilliant either historians or also just people who have been watching rovers for so long and have yeah. sort of such vivid and brilliant memories that they can express so well. So it's, that's been the key thing for me. It's trying to bring to life, you know, Keith back to life, in you know, in, in these pages uh, through people's memories.
0: Yeah, well, you've done, you've done a terrific job of it, I have to say. It's, it's a really, it is one of those you can, you can just sort of rattle through it. And I, I learned an awful lot, uh, for, for what it's worth. Keith was my... One of my first poster boys in those days, I, I would occasionally get a copy of Shoot magazine bought for me, and there'd be a full-page head and shoulders, and and Keith resplendent in the, the, the what what still remains my favourite ever Rovers kit with the half collar and all that sort of stuff yeah. up on the wall, only only to be greeted as a I think I would probably be about what would it be five five and a half as a small boy to be told that he no longer plays for Rovers, he's gone to Everton, and I, I'm pretty sure. That until that point, I didn't realise that footballers could be transferred. I thought that when, when they were with one club, especially when it was <laughs> your club, that you, you kind of got them forever. But uh, no, it wasn't to be. So Keith... Keith, possibly the first footballer that broke my heart with the transfer. I have to say, as a rovers fan, there's been many since <laughs> there' probably been many more to come in the future, but there we go yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning about the book you you've touched on it already that all uh, all profits go to charity and it's the East Lanks hospice, which is uh, which is a great cause um so anybody buying it is uh, is donating to a wonderful cause, and we'll put links in in the pod but if you uh, if you look at rob on on Twitter, uh, what's your Twitter handle, Rob?
9: at rob sawyer 70
0: at rob sawyer 70 and i think there's links in your bio aren't there to to get through to the book so people looking to buy that i I can heartily recommend it right let's let's delve into it then let's pick out some of some of the anecdotes and i think one of one of the things uh that that leapt out to me very early on was you you talked about the the rovers reserve in fennish which is also a, a ghetto for rovers players the difference between the modern day footballer living in the gated estate and back then. What what did you find out when you were talking to, to Barbara about life back then?
9: Yeah, it, i mean it is hard to imagine now how I don't think it was unique to Rovers that you'd just get these a club would basically buy a load of houses in, maybe on one street and basically rent them out at a peppercorn rent to their players. So you'd have half a dozen Rovers players on this on this one road. And I spoke to a couple of people who were growing up, lads who would just be playing in the street and would we'll sort of loiter outside, ready for, ready to try and sort of have a quick kick about in the street, almost with uh, Keith and uh, and his teammates if, uh, before they headed down to Ewood. So that that accessibility back then is uh, is just such a contrast, and uh, and and it's something you know, I don't want to sound all old-fashioned and stuck in the mud, but it, I think we have lost something, haven't we? That where yeah. you don't have that that ease of contact and, and familiarity. Uh yeah I mean later on uh I think Keith upgraded to uh, Wiltshire but yeah for many years he was in Feniscols with uh Ed Pickering but I think Billy Wilson was next door yeah it was, it was almost like a sitcom you could have had couple, <laughs>
0: like, uh... but there's a thought actually <laughs> yeah Ro- Rovers the movie or something like that going back yeah. back to those in time. but Keith Keith he was he was almost lost to the game before he started wasn't he he wasn't he wasn't really sure how how did he make manage to convince himself that there was a future for him as a footballer
9: yeah, so Keith was from Manchester, so Gorton, sort of East Manchester. So very close now to where the Etihad Stadium is for Manchester City. And he just plays sort of for local sporting clubs. Uh, it looked like he was going to follow his, uh, follow like many people and work in factories in, in Manchester. Um, he'd had a trial match for Bolton Wanderers. Uh, never Nothing came of it. It seems that City and United, the two teams on his doorstep, took no real interest. And yeah, he thought he was uh, just going to spend the rest of his life Uh, working in the factory there but Rovers uh, scout got wind of him took him up there I think in the spring of 58 Um, and then they called him back uh, in the just at the end of the summer Uh, I think he went and played in the tram match at Stockport at Edgley Park for for Rovers and that was it before before we knew he was signing professional forms for for Johnny Carey so uh, yeah things turned around very quickly um, and Year, obviously Johnny Kerry left very shortly afterwards to go to Everton again.
0: Another link, At, yes. A yes.
9: pattern emerging.
0: Yes. Um, road. <laughs>
9: <laughs> but but Kerry, Kerry clearly left a great legacy, these sort of uh Kerry's chicks all these young players coming through. So just a year later, Keith was in this youth cup winning team for Rovers with I think I think eight players in that youth cup winning team ended up signing pro forms for, for the Rovers. Um And, you know, three of them, including Keith, became sort of fully established international players. So, you know, that was the start of uh, Keith really making it really that 1959 Youth Cup. And it's interesting how players would change position. Uh, Keith was an inside forward when he joined uh, Rovers back in 58, uh, but gradually worked his way sort of back. So in that Youth Cup team, he was basically playing as an inside forward but he did have to fill in at centre half due to other injuries but Fred Pickering was the captain of the team and he was playing at left back and of course we all know we all and know what became of Fred yeah yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. this and where did, where did Fred go we'll, we'll we'll come back to that yeah, yeah I have
0: no idea did <laughs> he play boom right Birmingham City right.
9: <laughs> and, and, and another team yes um, <laughs> so yeah so by 1960 I think uh, late '60, Keith made his debut up against Chelsea. So we, his very first game for Rovers, I think he played at wing half, and he had Jimmy Greaves up against him. So that was a, a baptism of fire. Uh, but Jack Marshall, the manager, who came in in 1960, then tried him out as a as a fullback, and and that the rest, as they say. His history, but he just established himself, sort of replacing Dave Whelan, who'd broken his leg, and obviously Bill Eckersley was coming to the end of his career, uh, and Keith just kicked on from there. And for really the rest of that decade, he was he was always first choice, either at left back or right back. Yeah. But, but I think that the beauty of Keith is that he was one. He was very versatile because he could play different positions, and that background he had as a forward meant that he always had that instinct not just to sit on the edge of his box or maybe go as far as his halfway line, but no further. Keith's instinct was to get forward and get involved with the with the match and uh, get down the wing and get the balls in. So he was, I try and draw out the point, that he was one of the very first of these sort of attacking fullbacks that nowadays we take for granted and expect. But back in the early 60s, you, your fullbacks didn't do that. Yeah, so re- revolutionary Keith
0: stuff. Was, and as you say, yeah. the versatility to play on either side as well. And Keith and Billy Wilson, I think, were the, were the fullbacks when I first started Rovers. They were you know, both blonde-haired. I think both elegant on the ball, and that was that was the abiding memory of that of that back four. Um, some some cracking anecdotes that, that that come out in the book. One that I absolutely loved uh, was one about a fancy dress party in an England kit. Tell, tell tell us about that one because I just find that absolutely bizarre. Yeah.
9: <laughs> well, again, it's this sort of accessibility. I think it was just some neighbours of uh, of the Newtons and. Uh, I think they uh, used to go on cruises, and there would always be a fancy dress night on these cruises. So they, I think, they approached Keith and said, "You know, can I borrow, you know, some Inland gear so we can dress up?" So Keith just gave them his his Inland kit so they could go as a World Cup Willie kind of character. Clearly, <laughs> Keith was a very you know laid back, generous guy, who said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, take." You know, no problem. Take it. Um, it is quite
0: uh, extraordinary, isn't it? Can you imagine someone like living next door to just John Terry or Harry Maguire or something just popping yeah. around to borrow an England shirt for a fancy? I'll,
9: I'll bring it, but it'd be straight yeah. on eBay, wouldn't it? Now, yeah, absolutely, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I'd be signing it, framing it, and whacking it on there. I just think it's it, it is absolutely extraordinary what um, what what sort of yeah the different as you say the different approach back in those days. One element that came out reading it that I hadn't fully appreciated at the time, as, as I touched on, I didn't realise that footballers could be transferred, but Keith was not averse to putting in a transfer request. Now, now, Rovers in the late 60s wasn't the Rovers of the early 60s for sure, and I dare say he was ambitious, but tell us a little bit about his uh, trials and tribulations in trying to extricate himself from Ewood. Yeah, I, th-
9: I think it all stems back to when Rovers got relegated in, uh, in 1966. Um, Obviously he'd had good times at Rovers under uh, Jack Marshall, there was the Marshall's Misfits team that looked like it could win the league in 64, but after that things had fallen away, relegation, and and clearly Keith had just sort of broken into the England team at this point and had ambitions to continue in the England team. Hopefully he'd hoped to go to the World Cup in 66, didn't work out in the end, um, but he had ambitions and wanted to play top-flight football. So from 66 for about three years. He seems to have spent two thirds of his time on the transfer <laughs> list, but never being transferred. Um, and that's partly, I think, because of the the board of Rovers not wanting to sell him. They'd already allowed people like Mike England, Bed Pickering to leave, so they were probably very conscious that the the fan reaction if they let him go. Yeah. Uh, but, but also, it seems that he himself would always have second thoughts. So there were opportunities to leave, uh, but. Both himself and his wife Barbara, who was clearly very hands on in his career and a sort of real advocate for him, but uh, almost like his own agent, though, as well. Clearly, they discussed these things and he didn't want to leave the area. So, even though it looked like he could have gone to Southampton, could have gone to Nottingham Forest, where Johnny Carey was managing at the time, so he'd have been right. going back to his very yeah, first yeah. manager. Yeah. Um, you know, at the 11th hour, he sort of went and slept on it and came back the next day and said, No thanks, because uh, happy in Lancashire, happy in Blackburn. So, in the end, when he did leave, it was um, only because he could stay living in Blackburn and play for another Lancashire team. So, yeah, interesting just seeing how it was sort of, you know, he'd get fined, he'd go and speak to the press, and uh, then he'd get a fine from the Rovers board. But then he'd be playing the next week because he was too valuable to drop. So, yeah, fascinating. Even in those days before agents, players could make themselves known that they wanted to move on.
0: Of course, it was much harder for players to force the hand in those days. No Bosman transfers. So there there's no running your contract down. And uh, I suppose uh, the, the nearest modern-day equivalent would be Harry Kane, where you've got like, three years left on your contract, and if the club says you're not going, then you're not going. But Rovers eventually, um, fancy this, this is a theme that recurs through Rovers' history, looked at the cash flow and thought, hang on a minute, we're, we're in trouble here, and that bid from Everton eventually swayed him over. So we're, we're, talk- we're back end of 1969 now, as I recall.
9: Yeah, December 69. So, and, and, and ironically, uh, Keith was on the transfer list at the time, again. <laughs> um, but you were thinking of coming off it. He'd kind of, he was in a, the Rovers were actually in a decent run of uniform uh, that particular season. And he, I think he was quite happy with his form. Uh, but then suddenly, uh, Harry Katrick's Everton came in. Rovers needed the money. A price was agreed. And he was told, right, you're going over to Belfield. Uh, that's Everton's training ground uh, for talks and uh, and that was it so suddenly overnight he was transferred uh but critically as i said before that he was happy to go ahead with it because he could stay living in blackburn everton agreed he could remain yeah. living in east lancashire rather than relocate to merseyside so suddenly he was uh i think it was uh, eighty pound or, or more transfer fee uh valuable money for rovers and everton got a, a, a sort of international class left back to replace Ray Wilson, who had been their left back until that previous summer. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, he'd won the World Cup with Everton a couple of years earlier.
0: And what is amazing to think now in the context of the modern game is that's a player moving from the second tier to a side in what would turn out to be their championship-winning season. So yeah. transitioning was, was not a problem for Keith. You know, Everton wanted him and they saw something. And he was playing for England whilst yeah. at Rovers, in the second tier. And that, that is increasingly difficult to do in in the modern game. So he was quite, obviously, highly thought of. So if there was a, t- a time to join Everton, that 69-70 season w- was it, for sure. But it didn't go smoothly. It,
9: it didn't. It never quite worked out at Everton. and It's bizarre. And if you, if you just look at it, you think, well, he won he won the Football League title at Everton. So that season, Everton won the league. Um, he won the Charity Shield that following summer. And he went with Inland to the World Cup in Mexico in in the summer 70s. So if you look at that, you think, well, yes, this was the most successful time of Keith's career. You know, he won silverware, but it was also the most unhappy time of his career. Um, I think maybe he'd left leaving Rovers maybe a couple of years too late. Uh, Perhaps it was just the the adjustment to to a different club, a club with huge expectations. And that's not belittling the other clubs he played for in his career, but Everton... You go there as a the big money signing, and the supporters, as well as the people behind the club, expect you to hit the ground running yeah. and play well. And and I think he did find it hard at first just to adapt to the backup to first division speed and standard, uh, to develop, you know, in a new system, all those things, new teammates. Um, and then just as he got going, he picked up an injury and missed the the title running. So he only made about 12, 13 appearances. Um, and that kind of set the tone for the rest of his career, you know, uh, at Everton. The next season, he, I think he, he had the fatigue after the World Cup in Mexico. The team was on the slide. And Harry Katrick, the Everton manager, even though he was, uh, he developed this wonderful footballing team, the, the team was starting to struggle. And maybe he just didn't seem to agree with Keith about how Keith should play the game. And as we said before, Keith was this player who would love to stride forward, get the balls over. And I think Harry Cuttwick was saying, no, you stay back and you lump the ball forward to Joe Royal, the, the big Everton number nine. And so that clearly this sort of schism developed. Um, he was also playing through injury and he just didn't enjoy it. I think he he just didn't enjoy really being at Everton and Everton didn't seem the best of Keith in those two years. And, and bizarrely within two and a half years, he left Everton on a free transfer.
0: And that I find extraordinary as well. Again, uh, thinking back, in, in those days, clubs did not have to let players go on free transfers. So yeah. Everton must have made the decision that either they weren't going to get some money for him or they just wanted him out. Uh, and given yeah. his, his history, that seems unusual.
9: Yeah, they could, like you say, even at the end of your contract back then, the, the club could wait, uh, basically hold on to your registration and await a, a fee to be agreed. But no, they they just wrote, I mean, fair play, but you know they they did write it off and let him go. And Burnley had been waiting in the wings that I think they were interested for some time, but they obviously thought, well, let's wait till the end of the season, see if we can get him without any money exchange. That sounds um,
0: like the Bob Lord we know and love as Blackburn supporters.
9: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the summer of 72, you know, this player who appeared to be on the scrap heap, this player who two years earlier had been representing England at the World Cup in Mexico and, and really with some distinction, he was, you know, to many people, he was on the football scrap heap. But... Uh, you know, that move to Burnley just revitalised his career, uh, you know, an amazing turnaround.
0: Yeah, my uh, maternal grandfather was a was a Burnley supporter and he was constantly trying to uh, to, to win me over to the cause, forlornly, obviously, but he but he, he didn't stop him trying. He, um, he had a shop in Padium, and he used to nip across the sports shop across the road and buy Burnley shirts and scarves and Sabutio teams and things like that to try and win me over. But he did take me to the occasional midweek game when Roe was playing, I can remember the cricket field stand opening uh, and, and going to games there and, and seeing Keith play for Burnley. That striking kit with the carrot and sky blue V, I think is... is the chevron, yeah. Yeah, yes. the the, the right. kit that I remember. And then I look at yeah, the the back of, of, of your book, how many appearances he made for Burnley, and it was 253 in total. And I would never have thought it, it was that many. I'd, I had it in my head that he'd gone... Almost as a thirty four or five thirty five year old and maybe played a season a couple of seasons at the twilight but they actually got terrific value out of him for a for a free transfer absolutely
9: i mean i think i think he was probably around thirty one when he made the move so yeah he was he was getting into the vintage stage, but he was such a natural athlete in spite of his uh, cigarette habit but you know he, he he was just a rolls royce for a player and he just um he could just play on, played, what, for six seasons, five or six seasons. And uh, and he was vital to Burnley because they had this team that would sort of, in the second division, he just brought that experience and know-how. And, you know, obviously the players respected him because of his, his background. And, yeah. uh, you know, in his first season at Burnley, he, they got promoted, did well the next season or so in the first division. But obviously, as with many other clubs, uh, finances caught up with them. They lost their best players and... Went back down to the, the second division, but uh, you know, he, I mean, in his total career, what he played well over six hundred uh, games. You know, a remarkable career to play to play well into his mid thirties at Burnley.
0: Uh, well, well, we'll not dwell too much on the, <laughs> on the Burnley side. Of we, won't, career, we won't. Obviously. We won't. won't
9: dwell. But I, I would, I the only point I make is that I think you'd be hard pushed to think of any other personality with links to both clubs, real yeah. links, not just the old yeah. game who is adored by both clubs. And I think that's some trick to pull off. And, that, and I think that just says something about the esteem yeah. which he was held and, and what you achieved at both clubs. So yeah, I think we can say that, that much. much.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. There, there are some, there are some great stories in the book that come out as well, and particularly his son going onto the pitch and traveling with the team at Burnley and things yeah. like that, and yeah, it, it's, you know, just just lovely little insight um, into life as a as a professional footballer back then. And it's I find it interesting to compare and contrast with with what goes on these days, um, and, and the totally different approaches and all the rest of it. So retirement came to Keith eventually, um, and his his last footballing adventures in were sort of in non-league and he he tried his hand with both Morecambe uh, and Clitheroe um, but th- there was nothing nothing really keeping him in the non-league game there.
9: Not really I don't think he enjoyed management I think he would have been quite liked going to go into coaching but uh, he just the opportunities didn't really come his way um, which seems to a loss to football to be perfectly frank with you uh, so he sort of moved out of football and ran a ran a sort of newsagents just in uh, in a cent- central Blackburn for a number of years, and also a sort of little trophy business. So you uh, just happily go and present trophies to people. Um, very laid back, very approachable, and I think you maybe you remember uh, his his shop. Uh, I do
0: indeed. Yeah. Well, I would walk past it on my way to and from school every single day, going up um, going up past Sudal Cross and uh, yeah. going to, going up to school. Uh, it's just. Uh, clearly, I I, I can re- vaguely recall seeing him play for Rovers, but most of my memories are seeing him on TV playing for Everton, and then sadly seeing him on TV playing for Burnley. And <laughs> when they got to the seventy-four FA Cup semi-final, that sort of team that yeah. was a that was a good Burnley side at, at, at that time. But yeah, yeah you, you as you well, you talk about in the book on a sunny day seeing him sat outside, uh, so sort of yeah. en- enjoying his, his sinful cigarette, and unfortunately, that was probably. What was to bring his life to a premature end? He, he died so young.
9: He did, and, and it was a complete coincidence, really. You know, I wrote the book about Roy Vernon, and hadn't quite connected, but they, they both died at a very similar age, both in their sort of mid-50s. Um, lung cancer, both the same thing, lung cancer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, taken far too soon. Um, so, you know, he's been gone over 20 years already, Keith. Um, but I've, I've been just fortunate that there's so many people still around who remember him, remember him well. And obviously Barbara, his his wife is still with us, still following the Rovers and hopefully now being able to go back to games. You know, yeah. she, she's normally there cheering them on with Brian Dudless, and, uh, you know, she's a football fanatic and uh, obviously a great advocate of her, of her, of her late husband, Keith. Um, so it's been great to 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 learn about him from from the people who knew him and, and watched him play. And uh, you know, I wish wish I met him because it would have been wonderful to sit down with him for a few hours and just oh, hear first stand from him. You know, what, what 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 a life, what a career, just just sadly too short.
0: Yeah. Well all I'll say is it's a lovely read. And there are also uh, there are some terrific photographs in there as well, which, as I say, take me back. Um my favourite ever Rover's kit, that that youth team where so many of them went on to have amazing careers. Sadly, not always with Rovers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, was it ever thus? Uh, it's just, it's just a cracking little read. The proceeds go to charity. there is there is. I, I don't know how I can advocate it anymore. But if you're looking for a stocking filler for um, the football fan in your life, no, no, I don't think you have to be necessarily a Rovers fan, Burnley fan, or Everton fan to appreciate it. I think it's, it's a story. If you, if you're of an age where you remember Keith playing. I think it's interesting, and if you're even too young to remember him playing, just the compare and contrast exercise that you can play when you're reading it compared to the modern game is excellent. So uh, you've also been kind enough to give us um, a copy to give away as a as to yes. a listener of the podcast. So let, let's let's pose a question, and then people can email in the answer, and then we'll give away a copy of the book. So go on, give give us a question, Rob. Okay.
9: Uh, so Keith won 27 caps for England over the course of about four years or so. Um, his first and his last cap were both against the same opposition. So what country was the opposition for Keith's first and final England appearance?
0: Okay, so first and final appearance for England, what country was that against? And if you can email your answers to admin at brfcs.com, that's admin at brfcs.com, The first correct answer that we receive will win a copy of the Keith Newton story by Rob Sawyer. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, as always. As you say, when you move on to one of the many other Blackburn and Everton linked players, uh, do feel free to to drop us a line and come back on again and tell us about that. Before we let you go, let's just have a quick chat about Everton. Um, Rafa, how's it working out?
9: Well, I mean, it was always going to be contentious, wasn't it? Just oh, yeah. As, uh, when yeah. We you have our incoilates Rovers,
0: so we know all about that. <laughs> yeah,
9: yeah I, I did think of that. Um, but uh, to be fair, early on, he didn't put a foot wrong. Um, we had a good start to the season, which was crucial because you don't have much credit in the bank if you're coming in as somebody with connections to your close rivals. Um, but I think the past few weeks it's been difficult because we just don't have the depth of squad. Uh, a team like Everton, you lose two or three of your players. Yeah, you're, you're sunk. If you're Manchester City or Manchester United or Arsenal or others, you, you've just got the depth. We we don't, so that it's not been so good the past few uh, past few weeks. Um, I mean, Rovers though, I've been obviously following them, and it's been topsy turvy. Would that be a way of describing your season?
0: It's proper sort of, roller coaster. I think it's yeah. fair to say that we are well. F- from my perspective, we're in a much higher position than I expected at this point. Um, we're recording this after the uh, interesting home fixture with uh, with Fulham. Uh, we put that right on Saturday though with a, with a win over Sheffield United. So whenever this goes out, the results are probably probably rather accursed any <laughs> number of times since then. But if we if we finish top half having lost the players that we've lost uh, at the back end of last season, I think that would be that would be a really good outturn. If we could stay in the coattails of the playoffs, that would be an extraordinary achievement. I have to say. Um, there is some talent in that Rovers side I suppose the concern now is that Everton will come across and try and sign them all so we'll, <laughs> we'll have to see. keep an eye open for that but uh, <laughs> we'll maybe, see. maybe we can uh, put a barrier on the end of the M62 or something <laughs> and stop, uh, stop people coming off it and turning into Blackburn <laughs> Rob as always it's been an absolute delight and a pleasure talking to you, thanks for coming on the podcast once again and um, the Keith Newton story as we say is available with all profits going to East Lanks Hospice so I can't think of a, of a better course uh, all the very best, and I'm, I'm sure we'll speak soon.
9: Thanks, Ian. Speak to you soon.
0: that time of the year where people dig out their um, their scarves and hats and get wrapped up ready for boxing their games. Yes, Christmas is almost upon us. It seems to come round faster every year. But just imagine for a moment if you were in the Rovers squad and there was a secret Santa and you drew t- Tony Mowbray out of the Rovers' secret Santa. Let's say for a budget of £10, what would you buy Tony Mowbray?
6: Yes, yes, and this is one I've actually about, as you know I usually do things quite ad hoc but I've thought about this Um, and I've researched it and I can give him this for free. So we're going to a personal shopper, that's what we're doing because I am sick and tired of seeing the man in a dress shirt and trousers and some kind of gilet situation whether it's 25 degrees whether it's five degrees who's dressing him so that's what we're gonna do we're not going to the rover store because if we're talking about recycling they've been recycling the same fruit of the loom track like top for 15 quid for five years but we're gonna go somewhere we're gonna have a little shop around together and we're gonna make him fashionable i don't where were we was it barnsley when it was really really hot and I couldn't focus on the game because it was 25 degrees and he was in a gilet. And then he put like a jacket on halfway through the game. You know, he's a man of a certain age. We need to be looking after him. So that's what we're doing. We're going shopping.
0: Well, as Tony and I are the same age, the, the look that gets me is when he wears a, a nylon Rovers polo shirt with suit trousers and a suit jacket <laughs> over the top. And it's kind he of always... like it's that golf club captain who's got yeah. to hand out some trophies and he has to put his jacket on to go into the bar. It's just it's a always like mismatch.
6: half wedding guest, yes. half <laughs> I might get a run out, I'm not really sure. So I suppose the other thing is we could buy him a full-length mirror. Um, because maybe he can only see the bottom half or the top half and that's why it never makes any sense.
0: Uh, Of all the criticism that's ever been levelled at Tony whilst he's been at Blackburn Rovers, I think we might have tapped into a rich new vein of, uh, of source material there. Ryan. What would you spend £10 on in the Secret Santa for Tony, Matt?
7: I mean, I've got to say that was absolutely fabulous from Linz. So uh, I am not going to top that. But um, a couple of things. So I would spend the first portion of money on, you know, those little portrait or the little A5 portrait photos that they do in the Rovers club shop. I'd get him one of Daryl Ennehan, Joe Rothwell, and Ryan Nyambi, just as reminders about their contracts. So I think they'll probably come in at about £6. I think they're a couple of quid each, aren't they? So with the remaining £4, I'd get him the best AA route planner map thing that we can find, you know, one of the hard ones that you get, so that he can obviously teach us all about the journey that we're all on on and, and things like that. So that's the £10.
0: Money well spent. I thought you were going to say, we'll put the £4 left over towards the improved contract offers for Daryl and Ryan Nyong'o
7: <laughs> Might need more, sadly.
0: He's possibly £3 more than Steve Waggis is prepared to offer. But, uh, Scott?
8: I'd buy him a best-of DVD collection of Middlesbrough FC goals. And the reason is, because it might cheer him up a bit, Because in the last year, he's turned into a right miserable (laughs) git. One one of the reasons why I think a lot of sport has originally warmed to him, he seemed like that uncle figure who, you know, you'd have around at Christmas and he'd tell you all these old tales and inspire you. But suddenly that's all gone recently and he just seems fed up with interviews, fed up with answering questions and just don't seem to inspire anymore. So hopefully, um, looking back at some great Middlesbrough goals might
0: inspire him. That it, you know, Wolves can be fun again. Perish the thought. That, that's a great suggestion. Something uh, something I hadn't thought about suggesting. I have to uh, have to admit. Matt, what would you buy a grumpy Uncle Tony then for uh, for the Secret Santa?
5: Well, obviously, myself included. One of the things that a lot of Rovers fans have been getting really frustrated about Mowbray with is the fact that he always sits down. In his seat and so i get him i get him uh you know in summer you get the fold out garden chairs i get him one of them that he can set up inside the technical area so at least he's in the technical area and not just sat in his seat where no one can see him do you not think a marcelo bielsa upturn bucket might be in order well i i think i think tony's a you know that step above bielsa he, need, he needs the comfort of a proper chair <laughs> he's not as old as BSS so Leeds United actually sell those I believe
0: in their, uh, in their club shop uh, fully badged up for about 40 quid or something I reckon you could go down to B&Q and get a job lot for, uh, for a ten. that's tenner. good marketing that absolutely. is that's jumping
2: on a, on an opportunity
0: absolutely Holly what would you buy grumpy Uncle Tony then
2: my one will probably go with Matt's really well in the fact that I would get him a really nice new mug with some tea really good Good quality tea bags because obviously he loves having a cup of tea with players, especially Ryan Amey. It never comes to anything, but he does like having a cup of tea with him. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, that's my Christmas. Uh, that will be that will be dip. a mug
0: from our excellent sponsors, the Terrace Store. Surely,
2: absolutely, yep. Yeah, the Terrace, you can get that on there. We'll if- get him a Middlesbrough one, well, a Middlesbrough one as well, just to, just to make him smile. But yeah, I think the tea. The mug and the chair, I think he'll be sorted for the rest of the season.
0: Let's cheer him up. Let's have a campaign to cheer Uncle Tony up. Excellent, yes. Well, I hope, I hope everyone at Rovers has a Merry Christmas. And if they do do a secret Santa, but at least one of those suggestions is selected for Tony. Thanks a lot for that. And your input... Ian, you have what might be I suppose defined as a green job if, if such a thing were possible tell, tell us what you do for a living.
7: I work for Natural England um, so we are officially the government's nature conservation advisor. Um, it's been very pitched in the, the conservation um, world for the time that I've been there. I've been there 12 years now but recently um the role that nature can play in climate change and, and that type of stuff is really starting to come to the fore now. And it's really starting to energise our, our organisation and the things that we can do. So, um, yeah, that's who I work for as, as a manager in there.
0: And how do you see that impacting upon football?
7: I don't think it will, because um, I think, you know, money, etc. in some clubs um, is obviously quite tight. But just things like we have to get fans travelling by public transport to football games. And just to give you an illustration of that, I really want to go to Bournemouth away and it's £130 for a return on the train. So guess what I'm going to do? Drive. So there has to be a way that... And I don't know how it's possible or how we make this happen, but there has to be a way of subsidising match tickets or season tickets by using public transport. We have to make that connection. We have to change the whole culture of going to the football and change practices. And that culture and the change in the way that we live our lives is across the whole facets of our life, not just going to the football. it's, It's how we work. It's how we do other things. So. I really do think a serious conversation is needed in all professional sport just to get us all on public transport as much as we possibly can and really limit cars. And then other things like how you get football fans to do this, I will never know. But, you know, look at all the bloody plastic beer containers and things like that. Is there a way that we can have reusable beer cups or what? I don't know. I don't know how you make that happen, but we really just have to start challenging behaviours. And, And limit the waste, which which comes out of football in that sense. Well,
0: starting to do it at the cricket, aren't they? And getting a bit more highlighting the use of uh, of plastics and things like that. And Forest Green Rovers, I think, are an interesting case study.
7: I think a lot of the fans that go to Rovers at the moment probably live in the Blackburn area. Obviously, you know, with the drop off in attendances that we've had, you know, I think people like well, all of us on this call, I think, are probably in the minority at the moment if we think about the attendances that we had when it was twenty five thousand, we were probably attracting people from across the country because you know it was more attractive to go and watch rovers at home to man united or liverpool than it is at home to hull city with the greatest respect to Hull whole city so i think some of the stuff around public transport maybe that's not the thing that rovers can do i think it's just all awareness raising yeah. ian it it needs to become needs to become mainstream we need to keep talking about it and We've had some real success in society in recent years around race, around LGBT, around diversity in general, mental health. We need to make it a mainstream conversation like those things as much as there's still work to do in some of those areas. Um, I just think keep talking about it and make your average working class football fan who might not feel connected to the environment actually understand climate change and what's going on and where football fits into it.
0: Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to play the shameless rip-off of the Football Rambles Luke's game, but we're going to do it with a Rovers flavour, so we're going to call it Rovers Player Poker. I'm going to name a player, and I'm going to ask our panellists to bid for how many of their clubs that panellists can name. We're going to start with Holly, and the player in question played for five clubs during his career. He's still playing. It's Richie Smallwood. How many clubs of Richie Smallwood do you think you can name, Holly?
2: I don't have much faith in my football knowledge, if I'm honest. I will go for a reasonable two.
0: OK, I think that's a par bit,
2: I've got to be honest.
0: Matt, can you beat two, do you think? Uh, I'll go for three, yeah. Scott, can you top it and do four? No, I've got three. Okay, have to, have to Matt, you get to steal the point, as it were, then. Richie Smallwood, who's he played for?
5: Uh, does, does current club count as well? Yes, yeah. And
0: yeah. obviously Rovers right. is one of them in all instances. <laughs>
5: yeah. yeah so there's three
0: points was, Um, Um Oz, Hull and Rotherham. Correct. Scott, did you? Is that, were those three that you had? Can you name any oh, of the th- others now you've had time to think about it? No, I don't know where he started, to be honest. You'll kick yourself. Holly, can can you think of where he started his career? Oh, Middlesbrough.
2: I was going to say, I'm going to take a punt
0: and say Middlesbrough. (laughs) Yes, he started his career at Middlesbrough. He then went to Rotherham United on loan. So that picks up with one of our earlier themes as well. Rotherham then bought him and loaned him out to Scunthorpe United. At the end of his contract, he signed for Rovers. And at the end of his Rovers contract, he signed for Hull. And we should reacquaint, reacquaint ourselves with him, of course, on Boxing Day at, uh, at the KC Stadium. So, um, well done, Matt. You get the point there. So, Matt, it's your turn to bid first. And this next player, including his current club, has had seven clubs in his career. He is Elliot Bennett. How many do you think you can name from Elliot Bennett's yeah. career?
5: It's a, it's a bit of a measly one, but I think I'll go for four, and even then I'm not confident.
0: I, th- I think four's a par score, I'd say that's a pretty good score. Scott, could you beat four? I'd say five. You're going to bid five? Holly, can you do six? I can only do four. Right, it goes to Scott then to steal. Elliot Bennett, fire away. Right, so I'm thinking reverse order,
8: he's at Shrewsbury at the minute, isn't he? he? Is. Um, Rovers. Yes. um, Norwich. Yes. Brighton.
0: Yes, one more for the point. Um, Did he start at Wolves? He did, but he never played for Wolves. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm afraid you've lost the point there. No, it's one of those quirks where he did, yes, he did in fact start his career at Wolves, but never made an appearance. He had to spend two years there. Wolves loaned him out to Crewe initially, he played nine games at Crewe, he then went to Bury for two separate loan spells, his first one 19 games, and then the following season he played the whole season for Bury, making 46 appearances. Brighton then bought him in 2009, Norwich bought him uh, in 2011, and then loaned him back to Brighton for seven games. He went to Bristol City on loan, and then Rovers picked him up of course uh, in 2016 and he joined Shrewsbury earlier this year. So that's Elliot Bennett. Right, our third and final one, then. Um, Scott, you get to make the opening bit for this one. Title-winning side, he's had six clubs in his career, so he's no longer playing. It's Christopher Roy Sutton. Can you name his six clubs? I'll, I'll jump straight in with six and just... Oh, oh, he's <laughs> killing it off. Oh, he's playing <laughs> stone dead. Right, the pressure's on, my friend. Norwich. Yes. Rovers. Yes. Chelsea. Yes. Celtic. Yes. Now we get to the interesting couple.
8: Um, Which was first? Was it Aston Villa?
0: Uh, the Aston Villa is correct. They weren't the next one. There's one in between Celtic and Aston Villa. I think maybe Birmingham. Correct! Correct. <laughs> six out of six. There they go. He's not the editor of 4,000 holes for nothing. Well done, guys. Good round. Well played, everyone.
2: This is a BRFCS podcast. Sponsored by the lovely people at the Terrace Store. Follow them on Twitter at The Terrace Life and check out their website at theterracestore.com. So I am getting paid for this, aren't I?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Crappy royalty free internet music.
0: folks another episode of the brfcs podcast i have a lot of people to thank for their contributions towards this episode Connor pope for getting ben brereton diaz the chilean sensation to give us a little audio sting at the beginning our excellent new friends renzo musica from chile for their uh, ben brereton rhymes which have been doing the rounds on twitter you can follow them at renzo musica on twitter they are really really first class All voiceovers during this episode were provided by Matt Hall and Isabella White. The music comes from Josh Henry and The Symmetry. Except for the crappy, royalty-free internet music, of course. You heard the dulcet Scottish-Canadian tones of Bill Arthur, narrating the excellent book from Daniel Gray, Thanks to Bill for the narration. Thanks to Daniel for letting us use the material. Thanks also to our panellists. We had joining us on loan from Rovers Chat, Ryan Hildred, plus Linz Lewis, Michael Taylor, editor of 4,000 Holes, Scott Sumner, our young panellist, Matt Grimshaw, and Holly Hawksford. Thanks to our main interviewee, Rob Sawyer, for talking about the Keith Newton book. Don't forget to enter the competition for a chance to win a copy. If you're not successful there, it is available to purchase with all proceeds going, of course, to the East Eastlanks Hospice. <laughs> Lastly, our sponsors, The Terrace Store. With Christmas coming up, it's the ideal place to go to buy those presents for your rover-supporting friends and family. <laughs> From all of us here at BRFCS, have a terrific Christmas and we hope to be back with you soon in the new year. Until then, stay safe and take care.
1: Me voy a Chile.
0: here. Te dicen ven, eh? ven,
4: ven, re-re-ton-ton-ton, ya su gol-gol-gol estalla <laughs> el corazón. Te
1: dicen ven, 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 re-re-ton-ton-ton, ya su gol-gol-gol estalla el corazón. Y creen, y creen, y
5: creen, Big
2: Ben, Big Ben, Big ¡Vamos